following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Okay, so speaking of theology, speaking of things we do in the church that maybe become big words or things that we don't understand, the Lord's Supper. It's one of the traditions or things that get done, gets done in the church that if we're not careful can become a rote script, like a humdrum, overdone mantra, just doing something without thinking about its importance or considering the impact in our own lives. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. At CLF, we normally celebrate the Lord's Supper on the second and fourth Sundays each month. Because we're studying the Lord's Supper table today, we're going to take the Lord's Supper as well today. So we get the privilege in the month of April to take the Lord's Supper three times. And for Dave Quilla, it could not do it more, right? I mean, he thinks this is, I mean, enough. This is, this is an amazing thing for him. So there are some in our church that would say, because the Lord's Supper is so important, we should take it every Sunday and every time we're together. There are some in our church who would say we take it too much and are concerned about it becoming a rote script and not not uh, liking wanting it to be more important to us. Both groups have a very important concern. They want the Lord's Supper to be important. They don't want it to be something that's a rote script if we do it too much. And those who want to do it every Sunday want to do it because it's so important. And so the good thing and the interesting thing about the Bible is the Bible nowhere tells us with an emphatic command, the frequency by which we can do and should do the Lord's Supper table. Nor does it tell us who should lead the Lord's Supper table, nor does it tell us where the Lord's Supper table is to always be taken, or even what day of the week the Lord's Supper table is to be celebrated on. All those things are unclear in the Scripture, but there is one thing that is very clear from God's Word about the Lord's Supper. It shows us the meaning, the importance, and the spirit by which the Lord's Supper should be taken. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So here's what I hope we'll learn. If you're new with us, you should have got a bulletin when you walked in the door. On the back side of that bulletin's an outline. This is the big idea that we want to hit on this morning. The Lord's Supper is a divine ordinance in which Christians show their devotion to the Lord and their devotion to one another. Now that last phrase might take you by surprise. But my hope is, over the course of what we're going to study, that what was going on historically in Corinth, we will see why the Lord's Supper, this portion of the Lord's Supper, is so important to us here at CLF, and really to every church, every local church. So let's stand together. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34 together. We stand because this is God's Word. It's authoritative. It's God-breathed. Um, it'll come up on the screen. If you don't have your Bible, I'll, I'll read it. You just follow along. This is the reading of God's Word. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. From the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have, have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the, that the Lord Jesus on the night he, when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that, so, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that when we come to things in your word that, that are hard to understand or things that, that are challenging, that your word is not vague, nor is it abstract. Uh, your word has given us crystal clarity about how we should handle the things that you've given us. This morning, I pray that you would take this message and passage on the Lord's Supper and that you would apply it to our hearts and to us individually and corporately, Lord, as you see fit. You promise that when your word is preached and taught, that it will, it will never return empty. It will accomplish everything you send it out to do. And so, Father, for that this morning, we trust you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Now, maybe you're like me, you grew up in a church, or maybe you didn't grow up in a church, and you, I grew up in a church, I did not understand the the importance of the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. Maybe you're new to the church, and you've wondered why this we do this thing every other week, and you wonder how we do it, why we do it the way we do it, and it's confusing to you. Maybe you grew up in other 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 denominations or other parts of Christendom that did it differently. So this morning, I want to look at three things from the text I think are going to help us understand this. I want to understand where we got this sacrament. Where did this ordinance come from and the significance of it? Then I also want to look at what was going on in Corinth, because that's really important to the text of Corinthians, and how that's important to us and what, what that says to us. And then lastly, I want to see how we can take the Lord's Supper in a way that honors the Lord and in a way that honors each other. That, that's the goal this morning. That's where we're going. Okay, so let's start by looking at the divine ordinance. And we're going to see this in verses 23 through 26. Now, this is right in the middle of the text that we just read. And I want to start there because th- this part of the text shows us the importance of the Lord's Supper. And in my mind, if we can see the importance of the Lord's Supper, then we can branch out and see what was going on in Corinth, why there was a problem, and then how we can take the Lord's Supper table in a way that honors the Lord. Okay, so let's talk about its importance first. So in verse 23, Paul makes it very clear that this ordinance was given to us from the Lord Jesus. 
There are only two, and we'll call them ordinances or sacraments, some would call them traditions, that were given directly to us by Jesus himself. One is the Lord's Supper, and the other one is baptism. That would mean these are of remarkable importance to the church. So for us to ignore them or to not do them would be living in disobedience to Christ. At the end of verse 23, Paul makes it clear when Jesus instituted this ordinance. He says, on the night Jesus was betrayed. Now we know from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that this was the night of Passover, which was a huge Jewish celebration where they remembered the night that God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. And Jesus, like with his disciples, gathered on the night of Passover, just like good Jews would do. And in celebrating that meal, Jesus instituted a brand new meal of remembrance. So the Passover meal was a meal of remembrance. Jesus is instituting something brand new here the disciples have never heard or seen. Now verses 24 and 25 show us what happened that night and the significance of it. It says that Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to each of them. The Gospels tell us very clearly that Jesus shared the bread and the cup with all of them. He thanked God for it. And then he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Now there's lots of debate on this Little phrase, this is my body and this is my blood. Some have understood this to mean the bread and the wine actually become the body and the blood of Jesus when we take it into our mouths. Most in the Protestant faith, which is where we stand, would see the bread and the wine as representing Jesus' body and blood. And we believe that for a couple reasons. Now here's, here's why this is so important. The night that Jesus instituted this meal was during Passover. And Passover was remarkably significant to the Jewish people. At that Jewish Passover meal, they would eat certain things, and not one time did the Jewish people think that what they were eating actually became what those things were representing. So an example would be, they ate roasted meat as a representation of the sacrificial lamb that was that was sacrificed for them on the night when they were released and, 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 and uh, exiled or taken out of Egypt. They did not believe that that lamb, actually, that, that roasted meat became the lamb that was sacrificed back in Egypt. They also ate bitter herbs. The bitter herbs represented the 400 years of, of bitter years of slavery that they had in Egypt. They Thank God that when they ate the bitter herbs that it didn't become the actual 400 years of slavery, right? This was representing something to them. Another one, funny one is they ate unleavened bread. Bread that didn't rise. And that was in representation of the fact that when they were delivered, it was such a quick deliverance, their bread did not have time to rise in their ovens or over their fires. So they took out the unleavened bread, in a sense. So when they ate this Passover meal, everything they ate represented something but didn't become that. Now the significance of these representations in this Passover meal was not lost in the Lord's Supper. So when the disciples heard Jesus say, this is my body or this is my blood, they're not hearing 
this becomes my body or this becomes my blood. They're hearing this represents my body and the wine represents his blood. Now, the reason we celebrate this representative supper is told very clearly in verse 26. Now, pay very careful attention to what Jesus said here, or what Paul said here. When we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the reality of his death until he comes. So what's happening each and every time we take the Lord's Supper, and we're going to do it again today, is we take the bread, which represents Jesus' body, which was given for us, and when we eat it, We are declaring that we believe His body was given for us individually, personally. We're identifying with Him as our sacrifice and our Savior when we take that bread and we eat it. And in the same way, we take the cup, which represents Jesus' blood being poured out for our sins, and we drink it, we are declaring that he, His blood is poured out for us. We're identifying with Him as our sacrifice before God and the only one who provides us access to God. A.C. Thistleton put it like this. I think this, is, this really explains it well. Each participant declares, proclaims, or preaches in the breaking of bread that Christ died. And in eating the bread and drinking from the cup that Christ died for me. I appropriate his death for me. I take Christ as mine, even as I take and receive broken bread and wine that was poured out. Now what you're seeing here is this is this is certainly not a boring tradition or a vain, repetitious custom that was passed down by humans for us to just do without any joy or any thinking. It's a divine ordinance given to us by Jesus himself, which makes it a really big deal. Now then, let's, now that we know the importance of it, let's look at the division. What was going on in Corinth? Why would Paul feel the need to write these words that he gave us that we just read earlier? I mean, it won't come as a surprise to us when we look at the division problem in Corinth, that this church was remarkably divided. If you've been with us from the beginning of the study, you know that this book was written to help these people get along underneath the banner of Christ. Paul had a burden that these people would agree and they would walk in unity together. But notice what he says to them in verses 17 and 18 that reveal his incredible concern for them. Paul could not have used the strongest terms of rebuke to these people. He said to them that their gatherings, when they got together, that it's almost better as if they never got together. He even says to them in the language of the text, their divisions were so bad that when they gathered together, it was dangerous to the spiritual health of the people in the building. Can you imagine receiving that word from the Apostle Paul? When you get together, it's spiritually dangerous for people. So what is going on in Corinth that would make Paul rebuke them like this? Let's just take a trip down down history a little bit to understand the spirit of what Paul is getting at for a moment. Okay. So on the night that Jesus instituted this Lord's Supper, notice something very interesting. Mark 14, verse 22, lays it out very clearly. It says, as they were eating... Jesus introduced to them each portion of the Lord's Supper. Meaning the beginning of the Lord's Supper, where it started, was during or after a dinner. 
For the Jew, for the, for Jesus and his disciples, it was the Passover dinner. But then notice something happens in Acts chapter 2 as you see the gospel beginning to go out and people become Christians in, in Jerusalem. And notice what happens in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 in a different flavor. Notice how these Christians were celebrating the power of Jesus together. They were listening to the apostles' teaching. They were fellowshipping and enjoying talking about Jesus together. They were praying together. But notice a little phrase in the middle of all that. They were, break, they, were, they were breaking bread together. Now this phrase indicates they were having meals together. But most church historians, most people who understand this time, also saw that part of that meal, those meals together, was they regularly celebrated the Lord's Supper together. More than likely it was after dinner. They would break the bread, they would drink a glass of wine together. And notice verse 46 how often they were doing this. They were doing it daily. Now they could do it daily because their their times and customs didn't allow them to travel like we do and be far away from home like we do. They were close together in close proximity and they could do these things daily together. These folks were regularly hanging out, eating meals together, regularly sharing the Lord's Supper together. But then notice verses 44 and 45, which is really important to 1 Corinthians. Notice the spirit of these early Christians in Acts chapter 2. They had all things in common. A spirit of unity, joy, mutual sharing, and mutual life because of what Jesus had done for them. Now see, what we have a tendency to do with Acts 2 is we say, Acts chapter 2 is prescriptive. This is how we should all be living. Therefore, we ought to be doing all these things in the church. Acts chapter 2 is descriptive. It's describing to us how overwhelmed these people were with the gospel and what change it made in their life. Furthermore, culturally, they had meals together regularly. It's just a part of their custom and life and the way they did life. Now, when the gospel went out to the Roman Empire, here's what you normally saw in different places. Christians would regularly get together to eat dinner together. And more than likely, at the end of that dinner, they'd celebrate the Lord's Supper together. When they gathered together in for church on a Sunday, more than likely it was one of them in the larger homes in their church, which meant that person who owned the home was probably one of the wealthier members of their congregation because only the wealthy had larger homes. After church, they would celebrate a meal together. I'll just give you a term. You'll know what I'm talking about. Think potluck. Okay? At CLF, we've gotten too big to have normal potlucks, but when we do... You should always bring fried chicken and chocolate pie. Those two things go together perfectly in a church potluck. They called them love feast. Get together, they love on each other, serve each other, care for each other, and then after that meal, they would break the bread, drink the cup, and commemorate the Lord's Supper together. And here's what you had. You had everyone, rich, poor, bosses, employees, men, women, Jews, Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, all under the same roof celebrating Jesus together. It was a portrait to the world outside of the unity that only the power of Jesus' death can accomplish. The problem in Corinth was that when the rich Christian hosted the meal, they invited their rich Christian friends to come and eat the food, drink all the wine, and they kept the penniless Christians on the outside looking in. What you had in Corinth 
was a division over socioeconomic status. And when they came together for their potlucks, and then to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it was not the display that Jesus had instituted to declare His death to the world until He comes, and to declare the power of His death on His people. They were divided. You can see this in verses 21 and 22 of the text. I mean, compare this with Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and all things in common, sharing meals together, eating, eating things together, being around one another. Look at this. No shared common spirit. One goes hungry while another gets drunk, each eating their own meal while others have none. There's pride and there's, there's selfishness. And in doing so, Paul says, they were despising the church. which is to be a display of unity found in Christ that no other place on the planet can reveal. And they were humiliating people for whom Christ died. That, that's what's going on in Corinth. See, the division in Corinth was not over, should we have juice in our communion cups or wine? Should we one cup or many? Should we pass the plate around? Should we come up front? Do we have somebody serve it to us? Can we do it in the church? That wasn't the debate. The rich members were showing preferential treatment to their rich friends and violating the Spirit of Christ. And quite frankly, if you read the New Testament close enough, you're going to notice this is a burden of the writers in the New Testament regularly. When they tell us, they warn us, don't show partiality to one another. They tell us, warn us, do not dishonor members of Christ's family. They tell us, the Bible tells us, to prefer one another in love. It tells us to do good to others, but especially to those of the household of faith. And the reason we're to do that, the reason we're warned about that, is because Jesus is the great unifier. He crosses all cultural boundaries to bring people together from every place, from every economic status, and every educational status. His blood knows no boundaries, none whatsoever. So when we as Christians show preferential treatment to others, and by doing so, ostracize other Christians, we're violating the Spirit of Christ. That's what Paul's concerned about. That's a problem in Corinth. That's a concern for us. Listen, you, you, if you're from the South, you know what I'm about to say. They say that in the South, the most divided, the most divided hour of the week is 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Because that's when we go our separate ways and we don't want to let uh, uh, somebody of a different race interact with us. In the church, Paul's saying, telling to us here that that should not exist at all. The power of the risen Christ, the blood of Christ, overrides all of that. And the Corinthians were violating that. Now let's let's finish it by looking at the last point, which is devotion to the Lord and devotion to one another. And we'll see this at the end of the text. Now, now knowing that issue, knowing the division going on in Corinth, really helps us understand Paul's comment in verse 27 about eating the bread and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner. This helps us a lot. Paul was dealing with a divided church. He was dealing with a spirit of prejudice. He was dealing with pride and arrogance and entitlement in the rich. And he was dealing with bitterness and jealousy and envy in the poor. 
And he told both of them, listen, and we see it throughout our study of 1 Corinthians, they were not representing Jesus very well. And they're, and the only word I can come up with is, is they're flippant. You know that, just, yeah, whatever. God will just, their flippant attitude and actions toward the Lord's Supper don't reflect a devotion to Christ, nor does that reflect what their devotion should be to one another. That's what it means to take it in an unworthy manner. And this flippant attitude leads to disaster. I mean, read, read verses 29 and 30. He says, this is why some of you are sick, some of you are weak, some of you are dead. This, this is scary language here. This is not metaphorical, like, okay, it's some kind of allegory out there. No, this is, this is real life. This is an Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5 type of moment when we just flippantly come to the things of God and say, oh, whatever, God's going to deal with whatever, who cares? That he's, He warns them to say, listen, the, you're so off base in your treatment of the Lord's table and your treatment of one another that, that God, God Himself has brought judgment on you to get you to turn from your sin. And, and he, he likens that judgment to discipline. Like the discipline of a parent that would turn the hearts of a child by disciplining them, holding them accountable. God is so serious about His people. Listen, He's so serious about you if you're a child of God and cares so deeply for your soul that God will not allow your sin to go unchecked. He won't leave you off the hook. He will bring discipline, just like we see here, to turn us back to Him. He, he's concerned about this flippant attitude toward the Lord's table. And notice what he says in verse 28. It tells us why he would say there that before we take it, we should do what? We should examine ourselves. We should check our hearts before we take it. There, there is to be a seriousness about the Lord's table. But the question you have to ask in the text, and this is something that's really important, is what do we examine ourselves about? Right? See, I, I know this church, I, I've... By God's grace, I founded this church. We planted this church in 2003. I've watched this church grow. I know every member's name on my member list. I know their kids' names. I pray for them regularly on a list of people. I know, I know foibles about them. I know their challenges and the struggles they have. I know their emotional, I know their prayer requests. I also know something else about this church. This church, the people here are very conscientious to follow the Lord. They want to follow Christ with their whole heart. And when they read something like examine yourself, that's exactly what they do. And so sometimes we'll take communion and we'll see people, man, they, they will not get up out of their seat till they have done examine from head to toe every ounce of their life to make sure they can take this supper in a worthy manner. So we've got to ask, what is he getting at here? What, what is this examination about? When well, my understanding, historically and contextually, Paul is getting at two main things. Two main things you should evaluate before you take the Lord's table. And the first one is this. Is your devotion to Christ. Do you approach the Lord's supper table as a sign of your devotion to Jesus? Better yet, is Jesus your Savior and the one who you know gave His body for you and His blood for you? Or do you, you know that you're not a Christian and you just kind of take the table because that's what everybody else does? Paul would say that there's, there's a warning there. 
Does Jesus matter enough to you that you'll take the Lord's table until He comes? Or do you just flippantly take the Lord's Supper? I mean, there's some who might mock the Lord's table as if, let's see what God does. I wouldn't want to be in that situation. There's some who don't see its significance. There should be an examination before we take it. Because if we take it flippantly, listen, we're, we're bringing judgment, he says, upon ourselves. I remember being a young sixth grade boy and at a Southern Baptist church in Ovella, Texas, and I used to sit in the very back, left-hand side with all of my little sixth grade buddies, and we would always take communion, right? And I remember very vividly us giggling and laughing one time during our communion moment as we got done with our juice, we drank it, and the pastor was praying, and one of my buddies cracked a joke about the communion cups. I won't tell you what he did because some of you might want to go home and do that. Um, I don't want you to do that. And uh, I started laughing. The pastor raised his eyebrows up from his prayer, and he said, we will not continue until those boys in the back stop laughing. So he turned and he looked at us, gave us the stare down. My best friend's mom, who was, I don't know, kind of middle, turned around, caught both of our eyes. As soon as the final prayer was ended, she grabbed both of us by the ears, drug us in the bathroom, and she brought God's judgment upon two sixth grade boys, right? Okay? I learned very quickly the Lord's table is to matter. And she'd made sure, as that southern mama would make sure, that the Lord's table mattered. And I understood it very clearly. This attitude of coming to the Lord's table, that it's a joke, or it's flippant, or it's no big deal. Moms and dads, this is why we must be instructing our children on the sobriety and seriousness of what we do together in the church. The second thing we need to examine is not just our devotion to the Lord, but this one's going to surprise us. Our devotion to one another in Christ. Do you approach the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, as a sign that you are to be unified and reconciled with other Christians? Are you in good standing with other believers? Have you stayed current? Are you hiding moments of racism or prejudice or preferential treatment for others in your heart? Or do you ostracize others, just kind of hold them at arm's length? I mean, in this this part of the Lord's Supper, that second part of our devotion to one another, you can hear Jesus' words in Matthew 5 in the background of this. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus said. If you're offering your your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You know what the Lord's Supper is? It is a reminder that we are to be reconciled to one another and we've been given a ministry of reconciliation by the power of Christ to be reconciled to one another. It's a sign that we're to prefer one another, serve one another, and how we have Christ as our common denominator. You know what it is? It's a sign of our devotion to one another. When you get in the line to go take communion, it's okay to say hello to your brother and sister in Christ. You know why? You're acknowledging we are in this together. But I want you to notice something about this examination. Notice this is not every nook and cranny of your heart to see if you can find every sin you've ever committed and confess that to Jesus out of a fear that if you don't, you're going to eat the bread and he's going to drop you dead right in your seat. That, that's not what Paul's getting at in the text. 
If you're doing that, it actually reveals how serious you're taking the Lord's Supper and you should come down and take the Lord's Supper with joy. You would not be doing that if you didn't take the Lord's Supper so seriously. That's not what Paul's getting at here. Paul's talking about taking it flippantly with a bad attitude toward Christ and a bad attitude toward other Christians. See, his concern is not that less people should take the Lord's Supper. He's, he's not trying to scare people from the table. No, what he's doing, he's pointing out that despising the church for whom Jesus shed his blood and dishonoring other Christians by holding them at arm's length and then flippantly taking the Lord's table is a violation of the Lord's table. It's a violation of the spirit of the Lord's table. The danger Paul's after is twofold, and it's really easy to see. Knowingly sinning against Jesus or flippantly coming to his table and not seeing the Lord's table as a devoted moment to Christ and celebrating his death. But it's also knowingly dishonoring members of Jesus' family and then coming to the Lord's table and just thinking that's okay. And Paul's answer to how we treat the Lord's table, it's a simple answer. Look at verse 33. When you come together to eat, notice the spirit here. Wait for one another to make sure everyone is served. In other words, show the spirit of Christ in your gatherings. Now, as we close, just think about two critical things about the Lord's table I want you to see before we end. The first one is, I hope you see the gift of the Lord's Supper. It's a gift. It's not a big meal. Right? I mean, I think that we have the best bread on the planet. You know, my mother-in-law usually makes it, so it's really, really good. Right? Um, several ladies make it in our church, and they take good care of us. It's a gift to us to take the Lord's Supper table. It's a reminder, a regular reminder. Think about it. Every other week, second and fourth Sundays normally at our church, every week you're going to get a reminder every week of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us in the bread and the juice. Beyond the preaching, beyond the singing, you're going to get it every other week. But it's also a regular reminder to do a heart check about our relationships with other Christians. In other words, it's a reminder to stay current with people. You've heard me say before, you even smell an offense. You should say to somebody, have I offended you in some way? Have I sinned against you? Can we make sure we're right? Because I don't want to have anything like that between us. This is not a ritualistic to-do list. It's not a way to pay God back. You know why? Jesus has already paid everything you would ever owe. That's done. It is finished. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to you about Jesus' death and a reminder that you should love others because Christ has so richly loved you. But it's also a gift to us in another way. This is a beautiful thing. It displays the gospel to non-Christian friends. Now see, we go, well, it's the bread and the juice displays the gospel. Well, that's not all of it. You know what displays the gospel? The power of the gospel? Is when you know in your heart that you've sinned against a brother, and before you take that bread and the juice, you go to them and you say, I need to ask you to forgive me. I've sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? And that brother looks at you and says, yes, absolutely, I forgive you. And both of you walk down together, you take the bread and the juice, and you sit down in your seats and you take communion. You want to talk about displaying the power of the gospel. That means, dads, you sinned against your kids this morning and you know you're not reconciled. Guess what? Before you come down, just get with your kiddos and say, daddy's got to repent. 
Husbands, wives, what a great moment. See, this is a, this is a gift to us to display the power of the gospel. What, what a display to the world around that says these people, they get it. The power of the gospel is so rich and good that they can get along with one another in a world that's fighting all the time. What a gift. When we take the, the Lord's Supper together, we're telling the, the world that Jesus is the great unifier. We're telling the world Jesus is the answer to racism, sexism, prejudice, entitlement. We're telling the world that Jesus' blood can cross every one of our boundaries. That's what we're telling them. See, the Lord's Supper is a confession of our faith. It's, it's a proclamation of the gospel. It's also a testimony of the power of the gospel to change us. It reveals the power of Christ. Let's pray. Now as we pray this morning, just keep your head bowed there and just pray with me. It's a great, we're going to take communion. It's a great moment right now to just evaluate Examine. As John Piper would say, take 10 seconds to look inward and take the rest of your life to look upward. Father, this morning, you, you're calling us to just look into our hearts for some things. And I, and I pray this morning, <clears throat> Lord, you, that you would reveal to us And stir us to have a sincere devotion to Christ as we come to the table this morning. Would you, would you reveal to us, Lord, where we've not taken you seriously or taken your things seriously or taken your people seriously? And Father, I, I pray as well that there's moments here where we, we know we need to be reconciled to a brother or sister and we've, or we've treated them poorly or we've sinned against them. Father, would you, would you stir that in us? Would you convict us? And if those people aren't here, would you help us to set our hearts in commitment before you to go reconcile after we're done today? If they are here, would you set in our hearts to go to those people before we take the bread and the juice and help us to be reconciled? Help us to take, take the bread take the juice as a representation of our devotion to Christ and our devotion to one another. So Father, thank you. Thank you that you take your word so broadly into our hearts and you. You're working in us things that that you have individually planned for each of us through the preaching of your word. Help this to not be a rote script for us, just a, another thing that we do. But Lord, help it to be a, a fresh reminder of your death for us and the power of your death in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.